This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Great baseline. Uh, okay, so we got a number of games around the uh, NHL this evening and the uh, gold medal game, of course, between Czechia um, and Team Canada. Uh, this will be an interesting an interesting night around the NHL and an interesting night on Sportsnet as well. Uh, on, on At a Sportsnet Ontario, 7 o'clock Eastern, the Maple Leafs and the Seattle Kraken. Uh, also at 7 on Sportsnet 1 East and Pacific, you can see the Caps and the Blue Jackets, uh, the Islanders and the Oilers at 9 o'clock on Sportsnet West. Can Sorokin do it again? Remember that game? Was it November 23rd? Uh, when you look at the goals saved, uh, above expected, Sorokin, I believe, had the number one night since that stat was taken. Now, other models have disputed it, and maybe not number one, but certainly in that conversation and in that neighborhood. But Sorokin did it once. Can he do it twice to the Edmonton Oilers? Because that was a command performance. Probably the best goaltending performance we've seen all season. On Sportsnet 1 and Sportsnet Pacific, 10 o'clock Eastern is the Canucks and the Avalanche. Uh, in the meantime, I am very late on time because I'm a really bad host. So I want to get to Jesse Granger from The Athletic, and let's do so now. Jesse, how are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? Uh, I'm doing well. Uh, thanks so much for uh, for coming on and, and hanging with me as I, I get to break late. Um, comebacks. So I loved your piece at The Athletic. Uh, Matt Marchese, uh, uh, our, our producer, and I have been talking about this for the past few days because I think that, you know, we're all trying to figure out a reason why we're seeing so many comebacks. I mean, it's awesome. It's fantastic. It winks at junior hockey where we see this on the regular. We're just not used to this in the NHL. As you point out in your piece, you know, the league is on pace for 160 uh, comebacks, comeback wins around the NHL. The record is 138 back in 1819. You put forward a number of theories as to why. Jesse, which one resonates the most to you? Um, Well, I think just the broad one of just like most coaches kind of hinted at, I mean, we all see how offensive leaning this league is going. And not only are the players just getting more talented near the upper end, but the bottom end of the players to me is what is really leaning towards this is you're seeing the defensive checking line kind of go away. And it's being replaced by not only is it being replaced by players who are better offensively, but young kids who are being groomed in these bottom roles and they, they don't check as well. So um, Bruce Cassidy had a really good line where he was like, you used to have a line that you went to, to protect the lead. And now you don't, you've got four scoring lines and um, it's just the league feels very different than it did. Even, even as like five, six years ago, I think just in these last five, six years, it's gotten so much more skilled and and so much faster and a lot younger. Um, John Tortorella would call it uh, dumb and young, <laughs> but uh, it's it's definitely <laughs> making for some entertaining hockey. Um, and then and then to kind of go yeah. along with that thought process, um, it's that I think because these players are young. I th- um, it was uh, Lane Lambert who said once the momentum's going in your favor, it just or against you, it just feels so tough to stop it. And I think that's a, a another product yeah. of, of young players. You know, there, there's a whole lot there, and um, I want to unpack a little bit of it here because I, I, I think you're right, and I, I think the big thing that you uh, that you that, that you point to here, Jesse, is. You know, over the past few years, and there's a number of reasons for it, but there seems to have been a philosophical shift. And we see this by how we measure defensemen 
and how we measure you know other uh, uh, other players as well uh, and how we measure lines so it seemed as if one of the lessons of the salary cap okay so the salary cap goes back to 2004 2005 so this thing is introduced and bam and there's a new rules package and everybody has to learn and scramble and figure out how to play again and they got to break habits and relearn the game and now and i think it really started with the mcdavid group we're seeing a wave of hockey player that didn't have to change anything that didn't have to break any habits at all this is just the rules that they've played with and so they graduate to the nhl knowing that the game that's played at the nhl level is the game that they've played since they first put on skates it hasn't always been that way that's why when everyone said is there going to be another mcdavid of course there's going to be another mcdavid just like there's going to be another connor bedard there's going to be you know another pick your player there is going to be another one because more and more kids are playing with this rules package but the one lesson I think that the salary cap taught us and taught teams and you talk about it with your bottom six players is I think one of the rules here Jesse is if as a team you have a chance to improve any part of your team even slightly with even just a little bit more skill the salary cap has taught us that you do that unequivocally and the one place that I really saw that maybe most profoundly was that one year where the Columbus Blue Jackets had like a 35% on the power play it was like they just went about improving yeah. with skill at every single position and it paid off you know you know what, you know what I mean Jesse it seemed like that's one of the lessons I think because I'm glad you mentioned bottom six that to me seems like one of the lessons that the whole league has finally finally learned yeah, I totally agree. I hadn't, I honestly hadn't really thought of it in that way in terms of the, the new rule set and everybody kind of going through it, but that's fascinating to me. I think along those same lines, uh, like you mentioned, the bottom six, another, another place, and, and you kind of mentioned it, that they got a lot more skilled is on defense. And one of the, the answers to this that I found most fascinating was uh, Steve Iserman's because he mentioned that okay, the rise of the offensive defense, I mean, the Kale McCars, the Hughes, the, we, we, we all know that that position is changed but it's it's not just that they're better at scoring and that they're maybe not as good at defending because they're so offensively lean it's the it's what it's done to the offense in the offensive zone and he mentioned he was talking with rick tockett and he's like yeah back in our day it was three on three down low and the wingers and the defensemen stayed at the yep. point and it's really simple to defend when that's hockey now, all of a sudden, you've got Kale McCarr rolling down the right half wall. You've got guys rotating. They're pl- trying to play zone defenses. Responsibilities are constantly shifting for these players. You suddenly don't have a guy who's your guy. And guys get open. Yep. Defensive assignments get blown. And suddenly, we see goals. Um, they, they, they pushed the blue lines toward the center line. They, made the, they extended the offensive zone by two feet. So, it gave them the offense more room to, to work. And now you've got these defensemen that are flying all over the place and just all of that movement, aside from the skill that they have, which is obvious, but just the movement itself is making it so much harder for teams to defend. And Iserman basically said, I think the offensive side of coaching is ahead of the defensive side of coaching right now. And that kind of goes in cycles, right? Like when nobody can score, we put a premium on scoring and we all focus on that. And then now you can imagine a couple years from now, we're going to start putting a premium on stopping these skilled offensive players and teams. So it's kind of cyclical. And right now we're in the cycle of, we don't have the defensive coaching schemes to stop a guy like Connor McDavid or Kale McCarr <laughs> in what they're doing. 
but they will. I mean, coaches get their hooks into everything. You know, overtime used to be five minutes of pure joy, and you know the coaches have their hooks in, and now it's you know percentage of shot. It's, it's your shot percentage, and if you don't have it, then you regroup in the neutral zone, and that's what it becomes. You know, three and a half minutes of neutral zone regroups. I'm interested in what you just said though about movement in the offensive zone. So, the Detroit Red Wings under Mike Babcock, to me, were the best at this. And I talked to Todd, Elliot and I talked to Todd McClellan about this on our podcast a while ago. I brought it up because Todd was obviously on the bench. And it is, and we're seeing it now more and more, it is so subtle but so brilliant as a, as a, as a tactic. And this gets borrowed from, like I'm always a big fan of sports borrowing from other sports and bringing it to their sport. This is something we see in basketball all the time that the Detroit Red Wings nailed when it was Datsuk and Zetterberg and all these elite-level future Hall yeah. of Famers. And that is what we refer to as skating picks or moving picks. And McClellan you know, it took a more politically correct stance and referred to it as working to position in the offensive zone, which essentially means setting picks and maybe not so subtly, just shading players to open up. Like, no one was better at it than the Red Wings. They were the best. And now when you look in the offensive zone and, you know, once you, once you, um, once you hear it and think about it and start watching hockey, you see it everywhere. I think that that... The Detroit Red Wings borrowing from basketball the idea of setting picks in the offensive zone. We don't talk about it a whole lot, but it kind of has taken maybe more of a foothold now than ever in the offensive zone. Couple that with, you know, the analytics talking about, you know, slot line passes and percentage of shots, etc. All of a sudden, maybe when you add all of this up, Jesse, to the, and coupled with everything that you've just said, maybe none of this should be surprising. Maybe we should look at this and yeah. say, geez, NHL, why did it take so long? Right. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. The, where, where I notice it a lot in the picks is, is obviously in the offensive zone, but the neutral zone too, especially on power plays. When teams are trying to gain zone entry on power plays, I mean, the neutral zone is basically a, every player is setting a pick to try to, especially when you do the drop pass, right? When they, when they, when they rush up the ice, yeah. drop it back to the guy who's wheeling around. They're all just, the four guys are setting yeah. picks while the guy with the puck tries, tries to get into the zone. Um, it's, you definitely see it. One, one of the things that I found interesting also when, I, when we talked to the coaches um, that I wasn't really expecting was both Todd McClellan and Bruce Cassidy mentioned um, they think there are more comebacks now because refs are a little more willing to put their arm up than they were um, in the past. And they used to kind of put their whistles away. And then I looked at the stats and they were both spot on. I mean, more than 60% of so these multi-goal comebacks, go, uh, comebacks of two or more goals, there were 72 of them when I wrote this piece. There have probably been a couple in the night since. But uh, of the 72, more than 60% of them had at least one power play goal in the comeback. Um, And a lot of them, it was multiple power play goals. So uh, they mentioned it's a lot harder to sit on a lead when you you know you're going to have to kill a, a, a power play or two. And then you add into that that power plays are converting at, I think, their highest rate in 40 years. So, um, yeah, it's, it's yep. definitely making sitting on a lead tougher. And then that sort of, you know, begs the question, okay, what are the officials doing here? Is it better if they put the whistles away or, 
you know, call power plays for the team that's trailing. Either way, they're influence. I mean, referees going to influence the game, whatever. And then you sort of try to measure out, okay, well, what's worse here? Uh, deliberately calling more penalties to encourage comebacks or just putting the whistles away and just letting them play, you know, Hudson Bay rules. Fascinating piece. Uh, I encourage everybody to read it at The Athletic. Jesse, uh, you're fantastic. I want to get a chance to talk about Vegas here a little bit, but we're fresh out of time. Maybe give me a, a hot 30 on, on the return of Jack Eichel tonight. Yeah, if he if he can play, it's going to be huge for this team. They they have really, I mean, they've they've basically just been kind of a middling 500 team since all these guys went out. Which, to be honest, 500 is pretty damn good considering all the guys they're missing. But uh, Bruce Cassidy's been ex- excited about getting him back in the lineup. We're going to see a more balanced line, uh, balanced lineup from the Golden Knights. Mm-hmm. Eichel's not going into that top line that he was on before the injury. He's going to try to spread the wealth a little, try to make three really good offensive lines. So it'll be, it'll be really interesting to see what they look like. Fascinating. Jesse, you the best. Thanks as always for stopping by, pal. Awesome. This has been fun. Thanks for having me. Jesse Granger from The Athletic. Encourage you to read the piece on comebacks. And speaking of the Vegas Golden Knights, and I always want to go out of my way to mention it. And again, he's having another fantastic season. And all it did was cost the Vegas Golden Knights a fifth-round pick. I know the franchise is very young, but is the Chandler-Stevenson trade the best trade that the Vegas Golden Knights have ever made? You want to talk about popping late in your career? 39 points in 40 games. Last year, 64 and 79. Chandler-Stevenson looks real nice. Hour two coming up in a moment, talking about goaltenders with Mike McKenna. Everything Raptors before and after the games. The Raptor Show with Will Liu. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. All right, welcome to Hour 2. Thanks so much for joining me today. And uh, don't forget a number of games on the network this evening, starting with um, the Maple Leafs and the Kraken. You can watch that on Sportsnet Ontario, the Blue Jackets and Caps at the same time on 1 East and Pacific. 9 o'clock on West, it is the Oilers facing off against the Islanders. November 23rd, the night of Ilya Sorokin, one of the best goaltending performances we've seen this season. Probably the best goaltending performance we've seen this season. Maybe the best since, you know, goal saved above expected uh, has been kept. Uh, at 10 o'clock Eastern, Sportsnet 1 and Pacific, the Vancouver Canucks and the Colorado Avalanche. In the meantime, our good friend Mike McKenna from Daily Faceoff joins me now to talk about net mining and a really interesting piece at Daily Faceoff about why Canada can't make good goaltenders anymore. Damn it, Mike, how are you? <laughs> you know what? I'm good. I feel like that's a little bit of a misnomer, and I've probably gotten a little bit of heat for it in saying that, you know, Canada's goalies aren't any good, which, of course, is wrong, man. Canada has produced good goaltenders. There's plenty in the NHL. The biggest question, though, for me, Jeff, yeah. is why at least the narrative has been and why we've seen at times hit or miss performances in World Junior Championships with young goaltenders. I tell you what, though, we sure didn't see it last night from Thomas Millich, man. He was unbelievable against the U.S. team. So he's flipping the script. He's yeah. changing my uh, changing my article around a little bit, and I'm glad to see it. <laughs> but here's the thing, and I, I do not want to rain on Thomas Millich's parade at all. He is an excellent netminder, was great against the United States yesterday, grabbed the number one role after that first game for Team Canada, and he's been really, really good. The one thing that scouts always warn me about – 
And now I'm going to sound like Debbie Downer here, like, oh, Merrick, just, you know, just go along with the uh, go along with the ride here, you know, just just hop on the log ride and go down the watery slope and enjoy yourself and get soaked and have a good time like the rest of us. The one thing that scouts will always tell me is don't put too much on this tournament. This is a two week snapshot of a player's career scouts have you know years and years of you know viewings and information etc 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 and then you know guys like me will watch a player for two weeks at this tournament and make up our minds about him it's almost like you know the worst thing a scout can see at a rink is his general manager show up because the general manager will see a player and make up his mind based on one viewing meanwhile the scout has seen this player for five or six seasons but it doesn't matter because the GM was there for that one day when the player was on fire. Not raining on Thomas Milich's parade at all. All I'm saying is, let's not get too carried away here. Is that fair? Yeah, it's fair for sure. I mean, the hard part about goaltenders is that snap judgments are made very quickly with them. And, you know, you can... I can think even in my own career, Jeff, where I probably had two or three moments where if I didn't play absolutely lights out in those two or three games, I don't think my career even gets past college, right? You know, I can remember having a hmm. game uh, at St. Lawrence University when I was playing against Cornell, and it was myself and David Lenavieu, if you remember that name, played games with the Arizona Coyotes. Probably I remember about, him, yeah. Yeah, probably yeah. played, I don't know, probably about the same amount of NHL games as I did, about three dozen. Well, we were the two, number one and two college draft pick, or, you know, rated college goaltenders for the draft. And you know what, man? I played incredible that night and i actually met with the nashville predators after that game it's the first time i ever met mitch corn the goaltending coach of the time of the nashville predators and lo and behold i was drafted yeah. sixth round of the preds that year i had a great game and then years later in traverse city at the prospects tournament i'm with the blues and i'm 23 or 24 because they needed a fill-in goalie well you know i i had like a 40 shot shutout against dallas or something and it turned out that anaheim was there and saw it and it got me a deal in the american league for the next year and so I think about those moments in time, but then I also think back, Jeff, to thinking, why on earth wasn't anybody watching me in the ECHL when I was lighting it up in Vegas, right? Nobody was watching the ECHL. <laughs> if anybody had been watching that, they would have known. They wouldn't have needed to see me yeah. play that one game in a prospects tournament when I was older than everybody else <laughs> for me to prove to people that I can at least play in the American League. So I think there's truth to both sides mm -hmm. of this. You've got to see, get eyes on a goalie throughout an entire season. But these big moments, though, really do tell a lot about who a person is, especially for a goaltender. Can you rise to that occasion? Can you be like Connor Bedard winning a game-winning goal? Can you make the big save? I, I think there's some, some real validity to that. Uh, I want to get to the Canadian question here in a couple of moments. But one thing that, that I kind of want to ask you about, and I just talked to Jesse Granger from The Athletic a second ago, and we were talking about lead changes and how many we're seeing. And, you know, the NHL is trending towards 160 this year, which would be a new record, the old record. Well, the record that stands right now is 138, uh, set back in 2018-2019. Uh, and one of the things that I brought up with him, and Detroit was probably the best team at This is Babcock's Detroit Red Wings, although you seeing more of it and as a goaltender I'm going to ask you, you know, how many times have you seen this and just scream bloody murder uh, in the offensive zone how do you refer how do you phrase it skating picks or moving picks to, to free up shooters as a goaltender I know obviously goalies are sensitive about goalie interference for good reason how, how many times have you been you know had the play in front of you all 10 players in the zone 
and you start seeing pick after pick after pick, and you're screaming bloody murder. <laughs> well, you know, you're you're trying to clue your teammates in because as a goaltender, you are you're the eyes of your club. Everything plays out in front of you, and I think that's why so many of us become analysts. And um, you, you've had a great lineup today, by the way. Jesse Granger's he's awesome, man. We did stuff in Vegas. He's, he's awesome. another fellow yeah. goaltender. He knows he, he's he's awesome, uh, and he knows what he's talking about. Yeah. I think it's something that when you have players in front of you that are not just they're not just creating picks and and creating open space, they're also taking up your sight lines. Um, they're purposefully moving in front. They're trying to get into your crease if they can. I'm thinking of Corey Perry and how difficult he was to play against. That you know, here's a guy who'd come into mm-hmm. your crease, purposefully make contact with you, and get out of your crease before a shot would come. You know, he would run that fine line and. I, I always did my best to try to make sure I was prepared for that in games. I knew who the opposition was going to be that was going to be there. I knew who on the other club used to like to run interference higher, out towards the bumper spot in the hash marks, maybe in the high slot. If you're aware of when those things might be coming, I think it makes you a little bit easier to be able to get your eyes on it. And we, as we started to get more video later in my career and it became accessible, I think it's a reason why I was better late in my career because – my physical skill set didn't match the way I processed the game. I could think it pretty well, and I could really transfer what I'd see on video to a game set. So it's kind of an advantage for me, I thought, in some ways. Uh, but it really shows just how clued in you have to be to the opposition as you're facing them, even before you step on the ice. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm curious about these screens are something that goaltenders deal with on a daily basis, obviously. Essentially, that's learning how to play with your eyes taken away. And I can recall having a conversation with Tanner Pearson uh, about playing junior hockey, and he was coached by Dale Howardchuk with the Barry Colts. And the one thing that Howardchuk was big on was being able to get shots off quickly and not having to just, you know, look and place and shoot, but just know instinctively where to go. And Pearson told me that one of the things that Howardchuk would do with him is he would have him shoot while he was blindfolded. I remember asking um, uh, uh, him about this, and he's like, oh, yeah, he'd either have me close my eyes or put a blindfold on me, and I come off the half wall and have to shoot with accuracy because I can get away with, you know, taking an extra half second in junior hockey, but in the NHL, I don't have that. I need to be able to just, you know, curl and instinctively fire it uh, and, and, and find good placement for it. So that's a player having his eyes taken away when he plays. How do you practice getting your eyes taken away from you, Mike? You practice trying to find the stick blade at all costs. You're trying to find a window uh, of availability to read it. And if even if you can't find the puck, mm-hmm. if you can't find the stick blade that it's coming off of, you can read the players in front of you as a shot's coming. Now, that's not all the time. There's times where a shot will just come floating in from the point nobody knows where it came from. You'll hear it hit the bar, and it's in behind you, and you just look to the sky, and you can't do anything about it. It happens. But there are context clues along the way as the puck's in flight. You know, maybe a player's just slightly shifting to the right. Maybe your defenseman's, you know, got the flamingo going, and you can kind of just sense where it's headed. A lot of that's really determined before and after practice when you're just out with your teammates screwing around and trying to read pucks off of blades and trying to find those windows and lanes. And, you know, today's goaltenders now, a lot of them are starting to look up and over uh, the screens in front because goalies now are 6'3 or above for the most part. You can do that. It used to be you had to look around screens. And looking around screens, man, that wasn't easy. And and it really left you exposed on either side, whether it was short or far side. Um, 
and, and the heady players knew that they just had to get it there. So it, it's about finding windows, but it's also about all those context clues that you can see. You can read the reaction of players in front of you. And I love what you said about Pearson. I had a conversation with a friend yesterday who was talking about when he talked to Brett Hull a couple of years ago, and Hull used to say, yeah, I didn't even look where I shot. I was just getting it to the net as quick as I could, as hard as I could. And that's a great example. His muscle yeah. memory took over. He knew where the net was. He was just concerned with getting it there as fast as he could, just like Howard Chuck was teaching Pearson to do with his with a blindfold on. And, and that's why I always kind of, and listen, I did it for years, and I'll probably end up doing it again before my career is done. You know, the walk-off interview after the, the period uh, mm-hmm. where, you know, some you know schmuck like me asks how to play specifically, and the player is kind of like, I, I, I don't know. And, and you know, it, it, as a viewer, you might say, well, how don't you know, like, what just happened? And But then you think, like, everything happens so fast. Like, you're not consciously trying to do things. You're just working on the reactions that you've built up after year after year after year and then trying to explain it to a dopey guy like me holding a microphone while you're sweating and trying to catch your breath. You want to talk about putting a player in a near impossible situation. Um, Explain something, sir, that just happened while you're exhausted, while you're uh, trying to catch your breath, while you're sweating, trying to look presentable for television, and you can't explain it because your muscle memory just took over and the game played you instead of you playing the game. Talk about a tough position to put a player in, Mike. Oh, and it's it's a tough position to put the interviewer in as well. You know, I've been on both sides of that coin at this stage of my career in, in media and broadcasting and doing interviews where, boy, you think you've got the greatest question, all kinds of insight. You think you saw something. Maybe the, <laughs> the player changed the angle of their blade a little bit, and it looked like a conscious decision to sauce a pass across to a player who was maybe covered. And like yeah. the answer you get is that I just blacked out. <laughs> and you kind of look around, you're like, oh, well, <laughs> You know what? I tried my best. And then you have to pivot quickly and you don't expect to go quickly. Um, But that's it it really is the case that muscle memory, whether you're a goaltender, whether you're a goaltender, whether you're a forward or a defenseman, you see why at the NHL level, it looks like it's autopilot for so many players and the hardest thing to teach. And this relates back to that Canada question about goaltending. The hardest thing to teach is game sense as a goalie, as any hockey player. Goalies are hockey players, too. Reading the play is increasingly difficult to try to teach you can give clues to a goalie but they can only get that experience through practice through games uh, and trying to just you try to guide a horse to water right you try to let them Mm -hmm. understand why things are happening but ultimately the best goaltenders are the ones that can process things well and really that's an internal quality that only the select few have so uh, I want to get into your piece here, and you reference in it this Twitter thread, and when I read it, you know, I had to go back and read it a couple of different times because, you know, the the person tweeting it made so much sense. I'm like, well, wait a minute, this seems it, it seems really obvious, and it's from Rob Gerson, who's a, a former netminder, now works in the Toronto area. As a, as a goaltending coach, and I used to watch him when he played, I mean, I haven't thought about him in years until this Twitter thread popped up. Um, I used to watch him when he played for the Sarnia Sting, and the reason I would always go out of my way to watch Sarnia was Dan Fritchie was on the team, and I really loved Dan Fritchie, but also that was a really tough team that he played on. Like uh, Michael Haley was on that team, Marco Capero was on that team, uh, Dan Carcillo was on that team, a guy by the name of John Hekimovic, who may have been him and Zach Stortini, the toughest player in the entire OH. Like that Sarnia team that he was on, like they had skill, 
and they were tough. But I hadn't thought about him really, and I think he ended up finishing up with Owen Sound after trading his last year. But I haven't thought about him until I saw that Twitter thread and then subsequently read your piece at Daily Faceoff. Can you give our listeners and viewers here just a thumbnail of some of the points that Rob was trying to make? Yeah, for sure. And and by the way, you just took me down memory lane there. Dan Fritchie played in the North American League for the Cleveland Barons uh, in 2000, 2001, mm. when I was playing for the Springfield Junior Blues in that same league. And I remember how thinking how talented he was. And then he went on to have his what a shot. NHL career. What a so, shot. Yeah, yeah. And that was noticeable even at that at that age. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, that team had Jim Slater on it in the North American League. It was a pretty good league oh, yeah. back then. Um, but, but in any case... You know, Rob Gerson is a guy I really respect. He had a good career. We're both 2002 NHL draftees. Um, and what he said really spoke because to me because the development model of goaltending has really become so profit-driven that you have to get it. You have to have this basis. Um, but it's become hyper-competitive now. And it's the, the development mm-hmm. isn't from within with the organizations. You have to go outside to get it. And that's, that's pr- troublesome. Like if you look towards Europe, they, there's baked in goalie coaching. Finland, Sweden, it, it's it's in the pie, Jeff. I, I know I've heard you use that before. Yeah. It's there, you know, and <laughs> and we just don't have that in the United States and in Canada. And I think for me, it's really tough to see. Rob pointed this out, especially in the Toronto area, that you've got these select teams that recruit goaltenders, but the teams are really good. So you get the best goalies, but yep. the best goalies really don't face much meaningful action until you're in a championship of a tournament. And, and then what are you really getting out of it? And some of these teams only have one goaltender. That's ludicrous, man. Like, my, you need to have two goaltenders being able to develop because you also have the chance to find late bloomers that get that same opportunity. And you're letting people yeah. slip through the cracks by not doing that. And, you know, even for me, a great example that I had, the Kamloops International Bantam Ice Hockey Tournament. Our St. Louis team went out there and won that tournament, okay? That was unheard of. Our coach was Lindsey Middlebrook, ex-NHL goalie, the China Wall. And Lindsey absolutely refused to just play one goalie. It was myself. My goalie partner was Kane Van Gate of YouTube fame. And we rotated. And you know what? It was good for both of us. At the time, I wanted to play every game. I bet Keith Kane did as well. Um, But it worked for both of us. And you know what? I think that's the way it should be at youth hockey as well, especially at the rep levels. So there, there's a few things there. One about um, elite netminders playing on elite teams and not seeing any or much elite action. I think then, and one of the things that Rob talks about in his in his Twitter thread, which is which really found a home with me because I've had this conversation with a lot of different parents. Um, at the AAA level all across the country, I mean, what you see are super teams teams that are loaded up. So you may be playing in a league that has 10 teams, for example, but really only two or three are really competitive. So the goaltender is only seeing a really competitive game how, however many times a year, maybe six or seven if you're lucky. And, you know, because everything is so centered at the top, there's a couple of teams that really dominate and everybody else just, you know, they, they, they scrounge for, for, for points along the bottom. So the goaltenders aren't getting developed. And I always wonder about that. Like at the, you know, the U11 or U12 level, okay, it's fine. You're winning medals and yeah, I've won this tournament, but you're not really developing at all. And I always wonder, you know, is it not, because we've seen this with NHL goaltenders, it's not NHL goalies that play on dominant teams growing up that end up being legit NHLers. It's the ones from the middle of the pack. 
know, it's the yes. ones that are on like competitive teams. Like they're they're not embarrassing themselves. They're not destroying other teams. They're just sort of in the middle. That to me looks like a recipe for great goalie development. One, you're not getting absolutely bombed, so you're discouraged. But on the on the other hand, you know, you're in really competitive games. You're you're getting your reps, you're getting a lot of shots, and you know what it feels like to compete for three full periods. And I don't know that goaltenders on elite teams, Mike, are getting that at all. Remember one mom telling I asked her about that. It was a two they had they had two goaltenders, but this goaltender was a number two and was playing about maybe thirty percent of the games. This is at the U at that time it was U twelve level. And I said to this mom, like, how how is this any good for your son? Like he's not seeing a ton of ton of action or, or triple A, you know, competition in games. And her point was, yeah, but he's seeing a lot of triple A shots in practice. And I kind of went, oh, you're paying how much money so he can face triple A shots in practice? Just cringe, Mike. Just cringe. Yeah. Well, because you can pay your money to face triple A level shots, not in practice, if you want to do that on the side. And there's there's two parts yeah. to this though, because once you get labeled a winner as a goaltender, you got to in for a long time. And there's been goalies, there's a goalie in the NHL who kind of notoriously had his parents, I mean, they more or less bought the best teams for him, okay? And, and get all through youth mm-hmm. hockey. You, you can kind of buy your way to the top if you want. You got to make good on it. But for me, what it comes down to is that you still have to develop, man. And you're right about that honey hole of right in the middle. I had somebody yesterday uh, when I was talking to him about my own junior career. And I said, man, we were just terrible in Springfield. And he's like, well, that was probably good for you. You saw a lot of shots. I go, no, actually, it was terrible for me because I ended up being a you know mid-level prospect compared to a high-level prospect because nobody could get a read on me because I was getting my head kicked in every night. And, you know, did I overcome that? Did I have a career that I'm proud of? Absolutely. But I look back at that great example of a David Lenovo at Cornell. I mean, he had like a 1.2 goals against and a 945 save percentage, which means he was seeing 22 shots a game. Did David develop at all at school? No. Did he come out to pro despite being a second rounder, really ready to step in and face a lot? I'm not sure what he had learned from his college time, and it took a while. And at the youth level, at the rep level, that's what you're seeing. Like, you need to be on a team that's competitive, it's just like my nine-year-old at squirts. They started the year at a level that was too high for them. And they got relegated, Jeff. Yeah. They got moved down a level. And you know what? The kids are smiling. They're having Oh, fun. no, the career's the over. Bad. Oh, no, Mike, the, right. the hockey the hockey career is done. Oh, no, nine-year-olds got moved down. <laughs> we got moved down from B3-2 to C1. It's over, you know? Well, they're enjoying and they're getting better because they're at the right level. And and But the thing is yeah. that goalies don't always know what they do don't know because you're on a great team you keep winning you think everything's good and a lot of these goalies jeff now they're great goalie school goalies man they can they can bang through crease movements and rvhs and all this stuff in practice and in drills with a goalie coach but you put them in a game setting and they can't read the play because they haven't seen anything in front of them and to me that's that's kind of the whole crux of it is trying to get meaningful games with pressure to improve the stock of these goaltenders so what what advantage like how are other con- how have other countries lapped Canada when it comes to developing goaltenders? Like I, I mentioned off the top of the show today, you know the idea of you know the World Juniors, you know having this as visible as it is is great for the NHL 
because it gives hockey fans a backstory of who these players are so they don't just seem to appear from some factory in Canada. Like once upon a time, there was a goalie factory in Quebec, and that's where all the goaltenders came from, right? There was this the goalie factory in Sherbrooke that made all the goaltenders. But for an American hockey fan who may not be following closely, these players appeared out of nowhere. Um, and somewhere along the way, Canada fell off the map when it comes to creating consistently elite-level netminders. The factory was in the States for a while. The factory was in Helsinki for a while, was in Stockholm, and now it seems it's in St. Petersburg. And you look at, you know, one of the best, whenever Russia gets back to international competition here, good luck choosing who your starting goaltender is for the Olympics because you've got a handful to choose from. But how did it get that way? And and what are they doing that Canadians aren't? Imagine that three-headed monster. Shashirkin, Sorokin, oh. Vasilevsky. Maybe you can even mix in Kachetkov by the end. You know what I mean? It's just go down the list. And He's going to be that guy. I don't, He's, yeah. I, he is. I don't have a good grasp on what the Russians are doing. I don't because it's – I never had a Russian goalie you know, partner, and it's also kind of hard to get information in some ways. Um, you, but really can, with the can, Swedes can, and can Finns, I? Can I – can I – can I budge in one real quick? I just want to, I just want sure. to throw something into the conversation here. You know what I was always told about it? What I was always told about the, the Russian netminder is they put such a premium at, the young age, at a young age on skating that mm-hmm. it gives like, skating as a goaltender and, and skating properly as a goaltender that it gives them an advantage all the way up. That that is like, you know, we always put a premium on, you know, skating for uh, for players and for defense. But, oh, look at Kale McCarr. Oh, look at Jack Hughes. Oh, look at Connor McDavid. They do the same thing with goaltenders, and that gives them the advantage all the way up. Uh, again, I'm going to pull the Doug McLean. I'm not saying it's the truth. I'm just saying what I heard, and that is what I heard, Mike. Well, just look at Shishjerkin and Sorokin's footwork. If you need to have anything more to to sit on with this, these are two guys that play rather yeah. upright, that rotate like crazy. They use their posts as bumpers. They're they're constantly set and waiting on shots. You see, Saros is the same way. He's not Russian, but he's the same way. It's the goalies that can really skate in today's mm-hmm. game that differentiate themselves. So there is stock to that. What I can't figure out is the dexterity of the Russian game. They're so good with their hands today, which is something I never expected previously. And the Canadian goalies aren't good with their hands. They're goalie school. They just okay. block half the time. So I have a theory. I have me. a theory on that. Okay. I have a theory on that too. Could I interrupt one more time? This I Absolutely. got from Felix Potvin. I got this from Felix Potvin. Again, this is the, the Doug McLean line. I'm not saying it's the truth. I'm just saying what I heard. And I heard this one from Felix Potvin. This is his theory about it, about why goal, Canadian goaltenders block and don't catch anymore. Goaltending now, as youths develop, is a 12-month-of-the-year process. And what young players, and specifically goaltenders, don't do anymore is play baseball. So they're not taught to catch. They're taught to essentially use their glove like a blocker that faces outwards. They can block a puck with their catching hand, but they can't catch a puck because they've never played baseball. Agree, disagree? Uh, I think there's truth to that to a certain degree, and I've also heard that said many times by Mitch Korn. I used to do goalie camps with Mitch Korn across the United States, and we'd always have the kids raise their hand at the start of the camp. How many of you play baseball and 15 years ago three quarters of them now <laughs> like three you know um but i think more than anything it's that it's not just baseball jeff because i catch a baseball with my left hand and a puck with my right 
And I'll let you marinate on that a little You're bit. You're a weirdo. Um, You're, wait a minute. But, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. Hang on. So do you has you catch Okay, so we we know you're a right catch goaltender, but you're a left yeah. catch baseball player, so you throw with your right hand? Oh yeah, I'm right-handed. I do everything right-handed. I shoot a puck right-handed. I just catch with my right hand. You can catch with either hand. No problem. Uh and my daughter's, my daughter's 9 years old. She's playing goalie. She's the same as me. Um and that's why I could shoot the puck so well yeah, as you're a puck a freak. handler. It's why Mark Andre Fleury, Carey Price, Mike Smith, they all shoot the puck the same way as they do as a goalie and as a forward. Um but in any case, I did a lot of stuff that was hand-eye, Jeff. I played baseball. I played tennis. I, I raced go-karts. I was always outside with my friends throwing footballs and, and playing Frisbee. Yeah. And I wasn't sitting in front of a screen as a kid. And so that's what I developed in the summertime. And, and I think that my hand-eye, ping-pong, right? Like just these little games you'd play, I really think that helped me. Yeah. And there's just not that same type of sporting mentality among kids. Like they're a goalie by the time they're 10. And like I said, like they can do all these movements, but they don't have free hands any longer. And and now is the way players are shooting the puck, man. If your hands aren't free, if your upper body isn't able to move and adjust, you're putting yourself at a disadvantage. And that's where the best goaltenders today have incredible mechanics, but they also have great game sense and they can real they can utilize their hands on saves that, you know, even during the Quebec era when everybody was a blocker, we didn't see it. The game has gotten that much faster, and it's it's required the goaltenders yeah. to once again evolve towards athleticism within the confines of the blue paint. I am so glad you mentioned ping pong because for the longest time, and I've always been looking for people. You know, we're all looking for people to corroborate our beliefs and corroborate our our, our stories that we tell ourselves. I've always felt that for a game that's as reactionary as hockey, that table tennis can be a secret weapon. Because mm-hmm. of how it wires your brain when you play it. I'm so glad you mentioned And listen, like there are plenty. Like we, Elliot and I did an interview with Nigel Kerwin a, a couple of weeks ago. Longest serving employees, a video coach oh, for the Tampa Bay Lightning. Nigel's the best, Been with man. them from three weeks. He's a great guy, isn't he? Like he's, he's wonderful. amazing. And, you know, yep. he, all day for Nigel. And, you know, he talked about, you know, Marty St. Louis' game day ritual of playing table tennis with him. To get him like you know mental, mentally mentally sharp, and of course Nigel says, "Yeah, I beat him about sixty to sixty-five percent of the time. He couldn't beat me." Blah blah blah. I always think about Rocky Thompson when he was with Windsor, telling me about these epic table tennis games he'd have with uh, with Mikhail Sergachev when uh, when he was playing with the Windsor Spitfires. I've always believed that table tennis is a secret weapon for anybody who plays hockey, and I'm I'm glad to hear that uh, that I that I guess you're on team table tennis, Mike. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Team table tennis. You know what I did a lot as a kid? I raced slot cars. And that's all fast twitch, quick hands, you know, read and react, even though it's similar to a video game. Yeah. Like you, you had to do that the same way. But I remember, it again, at St. Lawrence, I played ping pong endlessly. And I got to the point where I got bored playing right-handed, so I started to play left-handed. I needed a new challenge because I wasn't losing very often. And now I'm terrible at it, so I don't know why I've lost it. Maybe I should start playing right-handed again, but... I just I, I wanted to challenge myself and and yeah tennis and ping pong especially for a goaltender just going to the net man that was my that was my thing in tennis serve and volley get me to the net that's where I had the most fun. That's fantastic. Um, I got like about uh, a couple of minutes here left with you, and I want to sort of wrap up on this one. So, if you're a you know parent of a kid who plays goal. Maybe he or she is, you know, between like the ages of like seven and fifteen or whatever. What should, in, in your estimation, 
what should they be doing? Where's the best place for them to play? And what should they be working on on and off the ice? Skating, skating, skating. You already touched on it, how important that is to skate like a goaltender. But I also think to skate out, play forward, play all the positions, learn to be a hockey player. I'm, I'm so thankful that my dad and grandpa made me skate out for two years before I specialized to being a goalie. I learned the game and I learned to love playing out as well. I still play out. And I think if you're looking at that age group, be a goalie in the winter. That's great. Get specific goalie training. You need that. You've got to have it. But in spring league, go mm-hmm. play out. Go play D. Go play forward. Go to one or two goalie camps in the summer. Take your mind off it and play different sports. And try to make sure that your child, if you can help it, is on the right competitive level. You don't want a goalie reaching for the next level. You want them to be challenged, but you want them to be able mm-hmm. to accept that moment and thrive in it. And like we talked about, see the right amount of shots that make them get better as they start playing. What's a sweet spot for shots? How many shots do you want oh. to see a goalie face? Do you have a range? Well, I mean, in the NHL, it's, it's, it is what it is. Uh, I mean, you're going to be facing 30. But I think for kids, you just you start it, the length of games. If you're seeing 25, 30 and their quality chances, you're probably good. Uh, you start getting into that 40 range, though, and you know something's off. If it's in the teens or 40s, that's tough. 25 to 35 yeah. is pretty, pretty normal. That's kind of what you want to look for the sweet spot of the bat he catches with his right he catches with his left he is a freak he is mike mckenna from daily Faceoff. <laughs> read him there he is excellent uh thanks but uh, i know i sort of parked more time here for you than you probably bargained for but that was a fascinating conversation really enjoyed it let's do it again soon pal i wish we had more time i, I would have gone for an hour you're talking my language thanks for having me today <laughs> I love it. Mike McKenna from uh, from Daily Faceoff. Uh, follow him on Twitter. Uh, read him at Daily Faceoff. Always fascinating. His latest is essentially, where have all the great goaltenders gone? And I know Team Canada last night. I know Thomas Millich, great performance. But uh, the point is still very much there. It is still a conundrum uh, in this country. Where do the next elite goaltenders come from? Uh, let's hit a break and get on the Montreal Canadiens page. Uh, they're in a bad way right now. Losers of six in a row. Um, Eric Engels is going to join us here from, uh, from Sportsnet.ca. We'll talk about the Habs and the New York Rangers, who are coming off of, by the way, I think I mentioned this with Elliot yesterday, that win against the Carolina Hurricanes, they trail twice and claw their way back through the three goals in the third period. Uh, probably the biggest win of the season for the New York Rangers a couple of nights ago. Tonight they'll face off against the Montreal Canadiens. Uh, we'll get Engels' uh, take on what's happening with the Habs. He covers them consistently as we uh, resume the program here across the Sportsnet radio network, simulcast on Sportsnet 360 and Sportsnet Now. Eric Engels from Sportsnet.ca is up next. Big guests and bigger opinions on everything happening in Leafsland. Real Kipper and Born. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Welcome back to the program. One of the games we'll have our eyes on this evening, the Montreal Canadiens facing off against the New York Rangers. Rangers coming off a huge win over the Carolina Hurricanes. I've described it as the biggest win they've had so far this season. I don't think that's hyperbole. I think that's legit. Montreal, meanwhile, mired in a six-game losing skid and more drama by way of injuries. Uh, Here for comment from Sportsnet.ca is our good friend Eric Angles. Eric, how are you today, pal? I'm doing great. Happy New Year, Jeff. 
to you as well, my friend. Now, uh, let's jump right in with the negative. What's up with Brendan Gallagher? <laughs> What's up is, um, you know, he's been dealing with a lower body injury that kept him out for a month. He came back, and in a couple of games he played, had a couple of awkward collisions into the boards and seemed to re-injure himself and tried to play through it in the Brendan Gallagher way. And, well, clearly that wasn't working as well as he'd hope or the Canadians would hope. And now he's got a meeting with the doctors later today to find out the severity of the injury. And we'll get a little bit of news probably after the game. Um, we know he's not playing tonight. Tough break for a guy who dealt with so many different issues over the last year, which we documented at the beginning of the season in the long feature. And, you know, he really wanted to come yeah. back, be healthy, and, and reestablish himself the way we've always known him. And, you know, this isn't the, the lingering injuries from a year ago. It's something new. And um, it's just, you know, it's a bad break for him. Um, I probably should have started with this one, but I want to get the Habs question in quickly. But I just want to get a thought on, on Yuri Slavkovsky. And if you think that there are... Not any misgivings about drafting him where they did, because there's still a lot of time for that story to play itself out. But do you think there's any misgivings about not sending him to go play at the World Juniors when you consider some of the players are going to be, you know, coming back all, you know, all full of, you know, energy and 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 enthusiasm? Do you think there's any misgivings about not letting him go play at the WJC? Like it would be perfectly understandable if anybody in Montreal felt there there would be or from the outside looking in thinks there should be. Um, I totally get that, especially given how much of a positive story it was for Slovakia within the World Juniors. Like yeah. I do a, a weekly segment here in Montreal in French um, on the radio, and, and oftentimes on that segment I'm joined by Andre Tourigny, who's talking about you know sending their player down to the World Juniors and the fact that he could win with Team Canada and, and what that would mean for his development, even though he was playing really well in Arizona. Um, you know, and, and maybe think like, Slav, uh, you know, Slavkovsky going to the World Juniors, the only benefit would be if Slovakia could win, which is a real long shot, because the things that he's working on to become a better NHL player kind of need to happen either at this level or at the level right underneath it at the American Hockey League level. And I think what, what you could say is if, you, if the Canadians don't have regrets uh, about, sending him, uh, about not sending him to the World Juniors, they should start significantly contemplating the opportunity to give him some games and some time in the American Hockey League where he can get larger minutes and, and play a bigger role and have the puck on his stick and gain some of the confidence that's necessary in, in able to perform and grow at this level. Um, speaking of Slavkovsky, one of the things, I was mentioning this with Elliot a couple of weeks ago, one of the things that, if I'm the Montreal Canadiens, I'm, I'm horrified about, because I think it's happened four, maybe five times already this season, and we're not even halfway through the campaign, is how many times this guy has been caught by just crunching body checks. Like, really, really heavy, heavy hits. And I know part of it you might look at and say, well, he's always been bigger than everyone he's played against. I mean, this is going into the draft. We talk about Slavkovsky, how he's ready. He's a man. Physically, this guy is ready for the NHL. You know, the flip side of that is he's grown up being bigger and stronger than everybody else. Like He's always skated with that advantage. And in the NHL, that advantage is gone. Everybody's big and strong and can skate. I would imagine there must be some concern about how many times this guy's been caught by a lot of really big, strong, aggressive hits. 
Yeah, I mean, and, and that also comes back to why they didn't send him to the World Juniors, right? He's not going to get better at adapting to that by playing there, right? Like, it, it is a, it's a double-sided coin. Um, the point that you're making is exactly the one that you focus on, right? Like, he's never had to deal with that before, and now he's dealing with it in the, big, in the biggest and best league in the world. Um, I think the concern on the Canadian's end is that he'd still be dealing with that and even more so in the American Hockey League where he'd be much more of a target playing much more significant minutes, um, which is why he probably hasn't been sent there, you know, yet. Uh, I've, I've spoken to members of management. You know, they don't have an Arbor Jack eye down in Laval. Uh, Michael Bozetta's up with the Canadians too. Yeah. Like, they want to make sure that Slavkovsky is in – an environment where he's protected enough that if for whatever reason somebody takes a, a run at him, there's there's people to deter people from doing that uh, on every shift. So it's a delicate balance. What I, what I will say about the player, and, and it's, it's a great point you're making, is that they are handling him really well in terms of the communication on a daily basis from management, from the coaching staff, from giving him little things to focus on to the development staff which is constantly on hands here in Montreal and this isn't like some other players who have come through here and kind of been left to their own devices and I just think you know they have got to make a decision on him pretty soon and I think that decision will likely be to send him down and and if they're smart it's with some protection you know going with him yeah um Martin St. Louis. So we've talked plenty about uh, the newly installed head coach, and we've talked about the nature of him being a player's coach and choosing conversation over confrontation and learning and development. Um, but does it not seem, and maybe we saw this with, you know, scratching Joel Armia, Yoel, Yoel Armia, rather, um, is he starting to get to the end of a certain rope with some players? Yeah, I mean, he's. Look, the Canadians have won one of their last 10 games. It's a six-game winless streak. The one game that they won before it started was like uh, they squeaked their way by Arizona and essentially stole the game because Sam Montalbo was fantastic. Some of the veterans, you know, whether they're disinterested in being a part of a rebuild or, you know, just don't seem to have the same pop that they had in the first couple of months have let their guard down a little bit. I think one of the things, and, and yeah, St. Louis certainly, you know, he doesn't have patience for that. For, for, as the ultimate competitor as a player, he's not going to abide by some of the guys not giving their 100% um, and doing the things that are non-negotiable when guys like Brendan Gallagher are playing hurt and Joel Edmondson is, and David Savard are stepping in for our pucks on a nightly basis and some of the other guys are not following suit. And Mike Hoffman finds himself on the sidelines. And, I, and you know, how much do we expect of Mike Hoffman at this stage of his career given you know what his reputation is as a player who can be disengaged at times he's got great offensive ability and potential there's you know i wouldn't even say it's he's inconsistent from game to game he's inconsistent from shift to shift there's some shifts where he gives you everything you want to see from him and then the next one he's carelessly giving the puck away Mm -hmm. and not physically engaged at all and and when martin st louis was asked specifically about that player today he said, you know, like he was asked, what do you want to see from him? And he said, consistency and physical engagement. Like, and it's not as if this is something that only he is seeing. Like, you, anybody who's watching these games can see that and, and understand that decision. He scratched the old army out, not only because he had zero goals on a year, but because when he was producing some quality scoring chances and given the best chance he's had all season playing next to Caulfield and Suzuki, he played his worst game of the year. Like, at a certain point, 
if you don't press those buttons as coach, I think you're losing some of the guys who are giving you what you expect from them. So I, I like the buttons that Martin St. Louis is pushing right now. It's easy to look at it in a vacuum and say, well, they're losing game after game. What's he really doing? He's, I, I, what I really like about him is he's completely accountable. He's, he's not just saying this guy needs to be better and that guy needs to be better. He's starting with himself and saying, I need to be better. Um, he was offered, uh, my buddy Mark andre Perot, who works for TVS Sport, said that you know when he was in Nashville, I wasn't on that trip, that the day of the game in Nashville, before the Canadians returned from the road, Martin St. Louis was offered the day off from speaking to reporters, and the reporters were asked if they needed him, and they said, look, he was really good with his answers yesterday. He's uh, spoken several days in a row. It's okay to give him the morning off. And St. Louis walked by and said, I'm not taking the morning off. All the heat is on the team. I'm going to stand right in front of the team. I love that. You know, like this guy is super accountable. I think he will figure this out. I think this is the biggest challenge he's faced as Canadians coach, but I also think it's the biggest growth opportunity he's gotten as a coach. You know, this is a simulation. The games don't matter as much right now in terms of results, but the process has to be healthy, and, and they have to treat it like – the games do matter just as much in, in terms of the results so that when they are in a situation where it does matter, they're able to fix it quickly. And so it's a young coaching staff, like 3,600 games of NHL experience between St. Louis, Robida, Trevor Litowski, uh, and Alex Burroughs as players, but only 315 games of coaching experience between them and the NHL. They're learning on the fly right now, and this is a big opportunity for them. Yeah, you know, that was a great point that you made at your, uh, your most recent piece at sportsnet.ca. You know, the, uh, the youth of the Habs, both on the ice and behind the bench as well. I mean, I, I think it does at least wink at the question, well, should they have someone more senior on that bench alongside Martin St. Louis? Someone that's gone through a lot of this? I'm not saying to completely redo the coaching staff, obviously, but do you think there should be someone a little bit older, a little more veteran with a with a little more experience on the bench there? Look, before Stefan Robida came on board, I think there was some serious discussions about making that happen, and I think the candidates that were being considered ended up with other jobs. I think David Quinn was one of those guys and ended up in San Jose, right? So I think so, too. It's, yes. It, yes. It, it's, it's one of those situations where you got it can't just be anybody. Like, I think it's pretty important. Like, there are, def, there are various considerations you have to have when you're choosing people to, to stand alongside you on a nightly basis and go into battle as a coaching staff and experience certainly being a factor that you would have liked to have seen added within that staff, given what we were just talking about, it can't be the only thing, right? Like I think the relationship that San Luis has with his guys, um, you know, this, this was, this was an opportunity for him to add his guys. And clearly Stefan Roby does somebody who he must've had some sort of relationship with before deciding this will be a good guy to add to our staff. So either way, you know, Given where the Canadians are at in their process and building, it's okay that the coaching staff is all going through that as a young and experienced group. And like I said, this is an opportunity for them to grow as a staff. And if they do treat this like a simulation, when, when it does come time for them to like actually like face expectations and real expectations, they'll be able to deal with that a lot better when that time comes. You know, speaking of uh, of veteran coaches, and I heard the same thing that you did about David Quinn as well. Did you uh, did you ever hear the name Ricard Gronberg around Montreal? I can't say I have. Nope. Okay. Someone someone mentioned that to me a while ago. That that was at least a name that was was brought up. Anyhow, um, 
I remember a conversation you and I had about Ben Sherratt last year was early in the season, and you said, Jeff, I think Ben Sherratt can get a first-round pick for the Montreal Canadiens, and I said, comment dit en français, tu rêves en couleur, you dream in technicolor, my friend, but sure enough, you were right and I was wrong. So, under that umbrella, what can Montreal get for Joel Edmondson? Well, I think, you know, unlike Sherratt, Joel Edmondson has one more year at $3.5 million, which depending on who you ask around the NHL is either a good thing or a scary thing. You know, the cap being what it is, the potential for it to only rise $1 million, and the idea that, like, Joel Edmondson right now is a first-pairing defenseman in Montreal because Caden Gooley is hurt. He's not a first-pairing defenseman for whichever team acquires him, and they'll be, you know, they'll have to have him for one more year. And yes, it's another opportunity to have that type of guy around for a cup run, and that's the whole value of getting him a year ahead of free agency instead of giving up for a rental. But at the same time, he's had an injury history over the last few years with his back, where right now he's healthy and he's not playing injured. It's hard to pin down what the value will be. I think there will be a lot of teams interested, but there will be some that will be scared of that extra year, and there will be some that will value that extra year for exactly what we're talking about. And in the meantime, he's not playing his best hockey, but that also needs to be put into context. He's in a higher chair than he would be for any team that would be acquiring him. And on a nightly basis, he's been playing with a rookie defenseman, no matter which rookie it is, that's usually playing the wrong side. Uh, And he also started the season, you know, 12 to 15 games late, whatever it was, because of the injury that he was dealing with without a training camp for a second straight year. So I think teams understand that. I think the scouts understand that. I think they know what the player is, his character is on and off the ice. I think he represents the best opportunity for the Canadians to recoup uh, for a 2023 first-round pick. Um, I don't know that they necessarily will be able to. And if they can't, I don't know that they'll necessarily trade the player because there's no urgency to necessarily do that. So we'll see. But I know that there are a few teams that are definitely interested in the player. And so long as there are a few, that opens up the market and the opportunity for the Canadians to recoup the type of asset they'd like to have if they trade them. Uh, Real quick. Hot 30 seconds. Uh, Team Canada is the buzz. Face off against Czechia tonight for the gold medal game. Got about 30 seconds. What can you tell us about the organization and how they feel about Josh Waugh? I think the organization feels great about all their prospects in the World Juniors. They had seven of them play there since Owen Beck was added to Team Canada. And while Josh Waugh was in the spotlight, man, did Owen Beck play really well in that semifinal game. Here's what I would say about Joshua is that he can score at will. He led the Q and the Q in scoring last year with 119 points. And he was able to do that early this season in terms of the way he was producing points, but the Canadians didn't love the way he was producing points. They were saying they, they had a meeting with him and said, Hey, you know, it's, it's all well and good that you can score and this and that, but we want to see you involved in the inside of the ice because we're not looking for you to lead the queue in scoring. We're looking for you to become a great NHL right. player. And the attributes that you saw from him the other night in the semifinal, he did all the dirty work and has done a lot of the dirty work on that line with Connor Bedard. And he's being referred to as an elite penalty killer and this and that. So I think that's a, a really proof positive that development is going in the right direction for the Canadians because they recognize certain things in his game Absolutely. and certain patterns and address them with him. He looks real good. Eric, always a pleasure, man. You're full of information. I love it. Our listeners and viewers appreciate it. Thanks, pal. You be well. Enjoy the Habs and the Rangers tonight. You too, Jeff. Thank you.
There he is, Eric Engels from Sportsnet. Thanks to him for stopping by. Thanks to Mike McKenna for opening our... That was a really interesting conversation. The goalie talks are always that way. Uh, thanks to Mike McKenna from Daily Faceoff, former NHL goaltender. Thanks to Jesse Granger from The Athletic and Elliot Friedman from Hockey Night in Canada and 32 Thoughts. Derek Brandeo, thank you. Jen Rolnick, thank you. And Maddie Marchese, our producer as well. Thanks for joining me today on The Merrick Show. Back tomorrow at noon Eastern across the Sportsnet Radio Network, Sportsnet Now and 360.